Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Paul writing to a church, obviously, he loved. A church that he may not have even ever visited. A church, though, that he had an association with, obviously, that he would even write them a letter, that he would write them a note. Epaphras, his friend, I believe, may have been the one who planted this church because of Paul's work in Ephesus and his pastorate there for those three years or so that the message of God went forth from Ephesus to Colossae, which was not far away, maybe through Epaphras, who I mentioned and who is mentioned by Paul, and they had come to faith. And Epaphras comes back to talk to Paul about them and says, man, they're doing some great things. They're doing some wonderful things. All of us churches, well, let me say most churches today are still doing some great things. And yet there were some, there were some deficiencies as well. There were some areas that they needed to work on. There were some areas that they were facing challenges. And Paul writes to them to affirm them in the areas that they're doing well, but also to challenge them in the areas of obstacle, in areas of barriers, in areas particularly where false teaching was trying to draw them away from the truth in Christ. He loves this church, and already he's demonstrated his pastoral uh, concern for them throughout the first few verses, even through the first few verses of chapter 2. But now he comes to them to address specifically what they are facing. Listen to the way he addresses them. Beginning in verse 8, he says, beware. That one word is rather ominous, is it not? Beware. I mean, up until this point, he's basically talked about who Christ is and the greatness and the glory of Christ. He's talked about his own heart for the people, how he's prayed for them, how he hopes that they continue to grow up in Christ. And now he says, beware. He says, you need to be careful. You need to keep your eyes open. A good message for our churches today or for believers today. As we go through this culture... As we hear so many things come at us, you and I need to keep our eyes open. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, and we need to keep our eyes focused on the Scripture. We need to constantly be reminded of the truth. Perhaps, and as of no other time in history, we need people who are true Berean believers. What does that mean? Well, in the book of Acts, you find that group of first century believers, those individuals who are there at Berea who hear the message of Paul. And it says that they continue to search the scriptures daily. We went to Berea. We saw uh, the steps just a few weeks ago that Paul would have stood on in that synagogue to speak to the people about Christ and who he was and how he encouraged them in their faith. And it says again that they would study the scriptures. They would look daily at the scriptures. I've always said if the Apostle Paul could encourage people or tell them to check the scriptures when he preached, that any of us pastors ought to be able to do that. Of say, don't believe just what we say. Look at the scripture and listen to the truth of God and measure it in what is said to you. Because he says, beware. He says, beware what? Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. 
For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Who is the head of all principality and power? In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. He tells them to be wary. He tells them to look at the world and to look at the things that are coming against them with eyes wide open because he is concerned that they are going to be taken captive. They're going to be cheated by persuasive words that somehow they're going to give in to philosophies that are not biblical, philosophies that are not of God and not of the truth. He recognizes that there are some people who have come into the church at Colossae and they are teaching things that are certainly outside of Christ and his word. Now, I've shared with you a little bit of what they call the Colossian heresy. That's how it's typically referred to, the Colossian heresy. What is it? What, what group of people are coming in and, and trying to move believers off center tried to move believers off of the truth. Who are these people? Well, you know, for many, many years, scholars have looked at this and they still can't figure out exactly who it was. Because it is so diverse in its teaching, so diverse in what it's trying to say to those early believers. As a matter of fact, if you read commentary after commentary, you'll find all kinds of different opinions. You would think they're all Baptists, by the way, right? Because you get a few Baptists together, you got all kinds of different opinions. And what I've decided is that most all of them are right in this case. I think most of them are right in the sense that they can identify some of the false teaching, but you almost have to put all of them together to get a full picture of what the church was facing. I, I, I made a little list with the help of some of those commentators of, of really what this false teaching embodied. First, it regarded Christ as a deity less than God. That Jesus was a deity, but he was less than God himself. I know that sounds crazy. If you're a deity, you're a God, right? But it, he, he has some type of divine power, but he's not truly God. You see that, I think, in the way Paul addresses Christ. Godhood or his deity in the first chapter and then also in verse 9 that we're going to look at in a moment. But not only that, they are worshiping angels. There are other angelic beings that were reverenced. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks or so. But they're worshiping these other spiritual beings. They are also practicing Jewish ceremonialism or ritualism. In other words, they're observing certain Sabbaths and certain festivals and all of these things, again, that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. So they're having some type of Jewish ritualism 
in their teaching. And then, if that weren't enough, you have a stringent ascetic type of living. Now, some of you look at me and say, what, type, what is asceticism or what is an ascetic type of living? I, I had a young man this week in my office that asked me what asceticism was. That is a monkish type of life. In other words, these are people who look at the world and they're going to try to withdraw and, and perhaps um, find desert, find wilderness somewhere so they can get away from the people. And they live an ascetic type of lifestyle. Some of those, again, with you, with us that were in Greece, you saw some of those monasteries that were there. And it's almost this idea of you've got to withdraw, you've got to deny self because all matter is evil. Now, those are four parts of the teaching. Notice how they all seem to go in different directions. And how they make up this larger false teaching narrative. I've told you before that this is a very synchristic, uh, uh, eclectic type of false teaching. In other words, they take a little bit of this and they take a little bit of that. Uh, again, I guess I've been, you know I've been studying all things Paul lately. You do know that, right? My mind went into overdrive with the Apostle Paul and trying to read about his life and read his letters and read uh, in the book of Acts when we were overseas uh, reading all that. And I remember that when he was in Athens and he was defending his gospel, his apostleship before Mars Hill, before that great council that was there, they called him something. They called him a babbler is what some translations say. Actually, if you look at it, they called him a seed picker. That was literally what it means. You're nothing more than a seed picker. Obviously, that has a great effect on the way you're understanding this. What, is, what does that mean? They accused Paul of being like this little bird that would go around and find a seed here and a seed there, and they'd pick it up, and you'd pick that up, and you'd pick this up. And, and the idea was, from these philosophers, is like, Paul, your learning has made you mad because you've gone around, and you picked up a little bit of this, and you picked up a little bit of that, and you've just brought it all together in this message. Again, I find that ironic since they were philosophers trying to pick out anything and everything that would come through Athens. But they called him a seed picker. It was a derogatory term. What I would say to you is that these individuals here seem like they were the true seed pickers, these false teachers, that they had picked a little bit of this and they picked a little bit of that. Now, most of the time, it's kind of like preference of music. Most of the time, there's one type of music you like, right? Maybe two maybe three. There are some of those people that will download or, or whatever, a bunch of different types of music. Sometimes that'll happen. But if you're a bluegrass guy, where are my bluegrass people? I got a few. You kind of just like bluegrass, maybe a little country. You're probably not going to go out and listen to much rock and roll, right? If you Elvis all the way, people are still Elvis today, right? Some people. Rusty, what did Mimi say? Mimi told them, she said, just always remember Elvis is the king. He always will be, always what? Just know he is the king. I remember her saying that. Elvis is the king. There are people who listen to Elvis. They're probably not going to listen to um, contemporary music today. 
I've got to move on. I can tell I'm losing y'all. <laughs> what I want to say is, there are times when people might, they take a little bit of that and take a little bit of that. They're listening to this genre of music and that genre of music. And basically what you find here is they, they are hearing all these different musicians play out there, these false teachers, and they're bringing them all in and they're trying to build their teaching on all these different things. It's a little bit of Greek philosophy. It's a little bit of Jewish ritualism. And it's a little bit of Eastern mystic religion and belief. It would defy your mind, I mean, to think that they could pick up all this kind of stuff. But if you look at Colossae, it was a very diverse city. It had temples to everything. I read somewhere that they even had a temple to the sewer god. I mean, that, I wonder what that temple would have looked like. But uh, there are all kinds of temples that they had. There were all kinds of beliefs that they had. And what they were doing is they were just taking this and they were taking that. I pointed this out before, but I pointed out again to you that our churches are doing the same thing these days. Yes, it's happening. Some of you say, well, how can we get to certain beliefs here, certain areas in our churches like we have? It is because what we've done is we've accepted a little bit of this and a little bit of that and we put it all together and we've kind of cloaked it in the name of Christ, so that it looks good, but now we have a total different truth than what we began with. And we see it springing up all over our nation. We've downloaded every type of false teaching that you can imagine. And we've imported it into our church life. And we have begun to regurgitate it to others who would come. But we are culturally relevant, right? Or that's what we're told. We're more responsive to the world. You and I must beware. We must beware because, as he says here, this philosophy, this empty deceit can come to us, and it can certainly, it can certainly, be persuasive as it enters into our ranks. He says, according to the tradition of men, you've heard this from men. You've not heard this from God. Now, overall, I'm a traditional type of guy. I think most of you would note that, right? I'm a little probably too traditional from time to time, but I'm a traditional type of guy. But truth should always outweigh tradition whether it's in the church or whether it's in the community or wherever, truth trumps tradition. I remember my sister calling me one time. We don't talk much, but one time she called me. And she said, she said, Reggie, our church is doing this right now. They're about to cancel this program. I said, really? She said, yep. And if they cancel this program, I just don't know if I can stay around. I said, why is that? She said, well, I'll probably stay around. But it just makes me mad. I said, well, why does it make you mad? Well, I just don't like the way they're doing this. I said, I understand that. That's cool. All of us have our preferences and all that. But let me ask you, was that program in the New Testament? She said, what are you trying to say? I said, I'm just asking. Was that program in the New Testament? And she said, she said you're trying to pull one of these preacher things on me? I said, no, I just want you to think through it. If that is not a New Testament principle, 
if it's not a truth kind of deal, then don't get too upset about it. Because you and I have enough to get upset of the way the truth is under assault anyway. So I don't want to confuse tradition with truth. Because there are some traditions, as traditional as I am, there are some traditions that may be good, but they're not necessarily, they're not necessary, that is. They certainly are not. We must be concerned about the truth. It's not about the tradition of men. Here he says, you beware of the philosophies, the systems, those things that are empty. He says, according to the basic principles of the world, the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. And then verse 9, he says, don't be taken captive by philosophy and deceit. He said, because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. What does he say? Well, he says, first of all, Jesus is God. Now, he's already told us that in chapter 1. But he says, the fullness of the deity is in Jesus. And he says, it is through him you find your completion. You can write this down. It's not original with me. I've heard it from preachers for many years, but they are exactly right. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't need anything else but Jesus. A lot of times we try to add, a lot of times people, even well-intentioned people in churches can try to add but there's no addition to Jesus. He is the fullness of the Godhead. You and I are complete in Him. But how about if you need Jesus plus, let's say, baptism? We're going to talk about baptism in a moment, but listen, you don't need baptism in order to be saved. You need Jesus in order to be saved. Oh, the old preacher I used to serve with, He would put it this way. He would say, you could be baptized so many different times that the tadpoles know your social security number. (laughs) That doesn't mean that you saved. Jesus plus keeping the law or doing good things. I hope you will bear the fruit of Jesus. I hope you will bear the fruit of what it means to be a believer. But listen... Jesus plus works is not salvation. But I got to do something. No, that's the whole point here in this passage. Jesus did everything. Jesus plus the church. I love the church. I've committed my whole life to Christ and his church. And yet, the church does not bring salvation. We could have your name on the roll in there, but that doesn't mean that you're saved. I hope you are, and I hope everybody who comes and makes a profession that they are genuine in that. I believe in a regenerate church, but I also will tell you, I believe there are many names on our roll of people who are not saved. 
Billy Graham once said that the church is probably one of the greatest mission fields. And I would agree. Because it's not about walking an aisle. It's not about just simply re rehearsing or quoting some type of prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. This morning after the 9 a.m. service, I went into my office with a young lady and her dad. And she prayed to accept Christ. And I led her in a prayer. I believe it's fine. But that just because you say certain words does not mean you are saved. Church membership. I remember again in the church I was leading music some years ago, there was a lady that got mad at us. That does happen. But a lady that got mad at us in the church and she asked us to send her letter to her house. She didn't want to belong to any church. She just wanted to send a letter to her. Now, I was younger. I was in high school. Maybe actually at that point, I just started college. And I was working out a lot of theology and doctrine, like I got it really figured out now. But I, I looked at my pastor. I said, we can't do that. I said, it's a membership that goes to another church. It's not a personal kind of deal or whatever else. And he's like, yes, we are. I said, what? What are we doing? He said, yes, we are. So just so she's off the roll and we don't have to deal with her anymore. We're sending it to her right now. Sometimes pragmatism trumps theology and doctrine, you know. But uh, even through that, I thought to myself, you know, you've got a membership and I know it, it is dear to you. But the idea almost that, and I'm, I'll be honest, the idea that it's almost like your salvation is written there on a piece of paper or a card or letter that we transfer. That's not the case. Paul says you need nothing else. You don't need Greek philosophy. You don't need Jewish ritualism. You don't need some Eastern mystic religion. You don't need it. You got Jesus. And you and I need to remember that because what happens even after we're saved, sometimes we forget that it's still Jesus. Jesus is enough for your salvation. Jesus is enough for your sanctification. And Jesus is much more than enough for your glorification. You and I don't have to try to say, oh, yeah, we've got to add this to our life or that to our lives. Look, we want to nurture our relationship with Jesus, but we never outgrow who Jesus is and what he has done for us in our lives. It is through him that we're complete. He's the head of all principality and power. And verse 11, this is what he says. He says, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. He says that you have been brought into the relationship, the covenant with God himself through Jesus. Remember the mark of the covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision. That was the mark of the covenant, that you belong to the community, that you belong to the nation. But now, he says, you've been circumcised. He said, this is a circumcision that has been made without hands. He said, what has happened is you have been brought into the family. You bear the mark of the new covenant. You bear the mark of the family. You've identified with him. How have you identified with him? Well, he says, you've identified through baptism. That is, 
the defining identification mark in our lives when we're baptized. I love the way God just lines this stuff up. Those of you here this morning, we talked just a little bit about the Ethiopian eunuch and how he says, hey, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? What prevents me? Oh, and I didn't mention this in nine o'clock service, but that word hinder, it is the verb that is used by Luke there in Acts 8, but it is also the same form of the adverb that's used as the very last word in the book of Acts. It means unhindered. I've been telling you a lot about how it seems like there were barriers and things that would stop the gospel from going forth. You've heard me talk about that. If you've heard me preach once on Acts, you've heard me say it. That there's so many things like persecution, geographical territory, ethnic um, relationships, whatever else. There were so many things that threatened the gospel. And the gospel just kept going on, right? So I love the way Luke uses that. He's, he uses that word hindered or unhindered to just say all that stuff was really little when it comes to who God is and the majesty of God. It might have looked like a big thing for the early church, but really it was just like it just went forth unhindered. There were no obstacles and barriers because God was in control. I, can somebody say amen on that one? That's awesome. Well, baptism, the identifying mark. When somebody comes to be baptized, we believe in believer's baptism. I said this morning that there are some who have come into our church in the recent months and years who maybe even were baptized as babies. And while we certainly do not practice that, I would say to those who have come in to our church that, or let's say they're attending our church, I would say to them that that again was the commitment of their parents the parents stood to commit their child. Very similar to our baby dedication or parent-child dedication, right? But it is very important. It is very important that people profess their own decision to follow Christ. And that baptism is for us to demonstrate to all that we have made this decision. It wasn't our parents. It was us. And what happens is we bear the mark of this new family through baptism. And of course, we believe in immersion here. I believe that is because the New Testament taught specifically immersion, water baptism by immersion, that people would go all the way under the water and all the way back up. They'd come up. I believe that's what the original word meant in the New Testament, but also it is the picture. It is the picture that is given here. I love telling people who just come into the faith about the picture of baptism. Even this morning when I shared with that young girl, I, I will always put it this way. I'll say, when you see somebody baptized, you see them go all the way under the water and all the way back up. And what you're telling people when you are baptized is that you believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. And what you're telling people as well is that you have committed your life to follow him. And in a sense, there's like an old person. I usually will call the name. Let's say, Jason, you've been baptized a few years ago. You might need to do it again. But anyway... Let's say there's Jason, and when he goes on, he's telling everybody that the old Jason, there's a part of him that's going away. 
the old man. And when he comes up, it's like there is a new person. For in Christ there is a new creation. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that the old residue of a man doesn't continue to try to trap you and work on you. But it just simply is a declaration of what God has done inwardly. And what Paul says is beware of those people that would come in and teach you all these false things because you bear the mark of the family. You have been baptized and you were baptized as you expressed your surrender to Jesus Christ. You believe that he died and rose again. You believe that he had made a change in your life. Don't listen to these people. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Man. If I just think of my own personal sin, if I were to enumerate it over and over, it is overwhelming. That sin separated me from a holy God. There was nothing I could do to get to him. If I tried to be good, it still didn't deal with the ledger, with the debt ledger I had, the sin that was there. If I tried in my own efforts, Never could reach the heights of a holy God. So what happened? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What happened? God loved us so. And he sent his one and only son he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All of the debt that we've accumulated, all of that sin debt was placed on the cross. All of those, as it says here, requirements placed there and dealt with fully through Jesus Christ. Don't you forget that when we walk through this week. Don't you forget the sacrifice. Don't you forget the cross. Oh, I love Resurrection Sunday. But the reason we have a Resurrection Sunday is because we have a Crucifixion Friday. And the cross enabled us to have forgiveness. Remember that word, well, it's a phrase in our English translations. It is finished. Jesus cried out. In the original language, it's one word. Tetelestai. Means yes, it's been completed. Perfect tense. In other words, 
Now it has been done, and there are continuing abiding consequences of what has occurred. <laughs> done in the past, but there are continuing consequences. But many of you also, through the years, you've heard in your churches that that word tetelestai, it also could be translated paid in full. It was a word that was used to designate the full payment of a debt. To so listen. When Jesus was there giving his life for us, he cried out, paid in full. The sin debt. I know what it's like to have carried my sin personally. But can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to carry the sins of all of us in this room? The sins of all in this community and nation and beyond. One who never knew sin to taste the sin of the world. The physical suffering was something. Yes, it was. I do not negate it. But I always remind people it was nothing compared to the emotional, mental, and spiritual suffering that our Lord went through. But why did he do it? So that our debt could be nailed to that cross. So that we could have forgiveness from all trespasses. And so that ultimately the victory would be seen because we are not captives. Listen, we are not captives. We are more than conquerors through Christ because as verse 15 tells us, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. The classic Example of how they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Satan, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, all that were involved, they meant to kill, the, kill Jesus, to kill the very Son of God. But what happened was God took the cross, which was a horrific, terrible symbol in that day and age. And what he did is he made it a, a life-giving force for us because it was through his death that he would achieve victory over every principality and power and this week as we recall our debts sin being paid we also give thanks for the victory that we have in him the suffering was necessary. But don't forget, Sunday morning rolls around and Jesus comes out of that grave alive and resurrected. And you and I, we may experience suffering on this side of heaven. But one of these days, thanks to the resurrection of Jesus, we will know him face to face and we will reign with him for eternity because our Jesus has placed everything under his feet. Let's pray together. Father.
Thank you again for this evening. God, thank you for this scripture. There are so many things that try to take us captive. There are so many different types of philosophies and beliefs. Even some who've constructed their own man-made theologies. But thank you that we don't have to be captives to those. Thank you that we can overcome. Why? Because you have done a work within us. And we've identified with you and who you are. And Father, we believe that you are the victor above all. God, tonight in this place, help us for a moment to reflect upon your work in the cross. Help us to be reminded that you are sufficient. We need nothing else for salvation. And Lord, give us a few moments during this commitment time to praise you right where we are. Hear our hearts now. And God, when we leave, Lord, help us to walk in triumph and victory because you have overcome. Lord, we praise you tonight. It's in Jesus' name that I ask that I speak to you tonight. Amen. Would you stand?